0: Man. Well, this is a pretty cool day for me, a pretty special day for me. I have um, my life coach here to speak to us, and he's actually the life coach for uh, me and my staff, and for me, if you've been here for a while, you know that I just have a thousand things going on in my head, and a thousand different directions you know, I'd like to go, and it gets a little chaotic in between my ears. And so he's kind of really helped me get a lot of the blah on the paper to where it actually makes sense and and, and helped me with my life and and, and the life of our church and even just, he's walked me through so much. Uh, I cannot tell you how grateful I am for him uh, to be in my life. But first service, he gave a wonderful message um, this, this morning and I can't wait to hear it again. But would you please welcome my good friend, Greg Reich. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I'm a, I'm the second shortest in a family of four boys. And uh, I've been uh, introduced as a safe Philistine more than once. So it's uh, it's kind of a funny process. They're all big like I am. I have one younger brother who's taller but skinnier. And we went to a smorgasbord together. And it was absolutely hilarious because when we walked into the smorgasbord, the whole restaurant, looked over at us, and it was almost like this spontaneous thing. They all got up and went to the buffet before we got a chance to sit down as if, you know, like, okay, these guys, you know, are going there, and I learned a long time ago that if you want to uh, find a place to eat, you follow the biggest pig to the trough. That's, you know, that's just kind of how it works. So, so um, I'm really glad to be here this morning, and it's, it's such a treat. I get a chance to work with Dan, I get a chance to work with... Uh, Jeremy and Cameron and uh, Pastor Randy. And it's just a joy. And, and like you said, I'm a life coach. And a lot of guys, people don't understand what a life coach really is. And I don't counsel. I don't deal with the past. I deal with the present. And it's, it's my joy to afflict the comforted is what I do. Is I take them out of your comfort zone and I get them into the learning zone, the stretching place that God has in their life, and help them see how God wants to use everything that they are. And help them bring that unfolding. So it's, it's such a joy to be here this morning. It's such a joy to be part of uh, your lives. I love small churches for the very reason that in small churches you get to experience what I call raw Christianity. People are here because they just love Jesus. They're not here because they can get lost in a crowd. They're not here because they have to do something, you know, on a Sunday morning. You're here because you want to be here. And you're active because you want to see God change the community. And that's why I, I love large, small churches. I go to a large church, and it's, it's so easy to, to hide. It's so easy to just kind of stealth in and stealth out. And, and small churches don't have that ability. You can't stealth in and stealth out. If you're missed, they know you're gone. You know, and, and so you matter, and that's the thing that's important. So I'm going to speak out of Mark 8 today, but before we do, the whole, the whole guise of the sermon today is that we don't always see what we think we see. So to start out with, I've got seven pictures. Uh, Can we put up the first one, please? Uh, Of what you think you see, but you don't really see. This is a stack of dice that obviously is impossible to stack that way. You don't know where it begins, where it ends. You can't really find what's going on, and it it gets a little confusing. So you're not really seeing what you think you're seeing, but you're not quite sure what you see. The next picture. This is a set of hands drawing a set of hands, okay? Uh, it, it's a great artist's rendition of sometimes who we are as people. And sometimes we just don't know who's in charge, what's going on, uh, whether we're the tail or the head half the time. And, and, and I just thought this was a wonderful picture because oftentimes this is how I find a lot of clients. You know, they're drawing their hand, who's drawing a hand, and they're going, which one is really leading the process? Next picture. This, I don't, has anybody ever seen this guy's chalk art before? This guy's phenomenal. This is a flat sidewalk. You are not seeing a three dimensional drawing of a guy falling off a scaffolding. This is a flat piece of concrete. So you're not seeing what you think you're seeing. Next one. This is also a flat piece of concrete. And there's no hole in the sidewalk, and there's not a massive amount of water tumbling into this hole. This is a flat piece of sidewalk. So your mind thinks it's seeing something that it actually isn't seeing. Next picture. For those of you who may be tattoo buffs, this is not a hole in the arm. (laughs) Okay. It it gets so confusing if you see something like this because you, you really swear that this guy's got... This hole burning into his, fore, I mean, into his bicep, and you're not seeing what you think you're seeing. Next picture. Do you see Jesus, or do you see Jesus on a donkey? You see, there's two actually two pictures here because the the archway is the hair of Jesus. The two faces in the background become his eyes. Uh, Jesus' elbows become a nose. The crease in his garment becomes the mouth of the head of Jesus, or you see Jesus coming in. On a donkey. Next one. This is obviously the passion: Jesus on the cross. You see the face of Jesus with the uh, eyes of God in the background, and or you see Jesus on the cross. And I'd like to take you this morning on the journey that the Gospel of Mark takes us on, of who Jesus really is. And no more PowerPoints, no more anything else. I'm going to force you guys to go old school today. Uh, for those of you who take notes, I'll try to make my points very clear. Uh, the reason why is because I, there's nothing more infuriating to me. I go to a large church, and there you have TV monitors everywhere, and there's stuff going on. and you got the live guy right up front, and he's speaking, and everybody's watching the monitors. And it's just obvious to me that we spend far too much time in front of a TV, far too much time in front of a monitor. Um, I didn't say this the first service, but, you know, have anybody been to Wild Wings up on Sail Hill? You know, I, I visited one time, and I'll never go back. And it's not because I don't like wings. It's because they have 15 to 20 monitors, TVs, playing all at the same time. And different games on, almost every one. And it's like walking into... Chaos to me. It's just you don't know which one to watch. You you know, you're never seated by the game you really want to watch in the first place. You know, so you got to ask to get the channel, but you always constantly hear the noise in the background. So you're hearing eight or ten events all at the same time. And it's like, why am I here? I want to carry on a conversation. When I go on a date with my wife, I make us turn our cell phones off. There's nothing more frustrating to me to go into a restaurant and – eating dinner, and you're eating dinner with your spouse, and pretty soon you're, you're on Twitter, or you're on Facebook. Or, and it's like, what's going on here? So we're old-schooling it today, okay? You're going to listen to me talk, and you're going to take notes if you want to take notes. If you don't, you're not off to sleep. Do whatever you want to do. But you don't get the privilege of watching the TV monitor for the next 35 or 40 minutes, okay? So let's read Mark uh, chapter 8, starting at verse 13. I love the book of Mark. Uh, it's actually my favorite gospel. Uh, one of the reasons why is, I don't know if you realize, but uh, out of the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, uh, over 90% of Mark is word for word in those gospels. It's very obvious that Mar- Matthew and Luke took Mark's gospel, copied it, and then added the rest to their, you know, to their gospels. Uh, so if you want the... The gist of who Jesus is, the whole process, you get it in Mark. Uh, One of the reasons why I love Mark so much is because he doesn't try to surprise you with what his message is. In Mark 1.1, he says, um, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah of God, the Son of God. He tells you straight up front what he's going to talk about, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He ends, in the last chapter, he ends it with a centurion saying, truly, this man is the Son of God. So he takes you through this wonderful journey, beginning in Mark 8, verse um, 13. So he got back in the boat, and he left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. But the disciples had forgotten to bring food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. At this they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, Why are you arguing about bread? Do you not know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Don't you remember anything? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterwards? Twelve, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet, they asked. He asked them. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, Can you see anything now? And the man looked around. Yes, he said. I see people, but I see them very clear. I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again. His eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored. And he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away, saying, Don't go into the village on your way home. Jesus and the disciples left Galilee. They went up to the village near uh, Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, the others say you are one of the other prophets. And then he asked them the million-dollar question, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Don't you find it interesting that for the first time in history, God is huggable? And he says, don't tell anybody. But as you begin to unfold in this portion of Scripture, you'll see why he wanted to stay a certain amount of silence on who he was. And so let's just go and unfold that. That um, Prior to the sequence, let's just go back to the beginning of Mark 8 so you really kind of get the grist of it. Jesus is bouncing from place to place to place along the Sea of Galilee. And he actually ends up in Bethsaida. And I didn't say this the first service, but Bethsaida is... In pagan territory, these guys are mostly Hellenistic Greek-oriented mind people. Okay, they're not Jewish believing people. These are the guys that um, don't really know who Jesus is. He doesn't have to deal with a lot of the strict Jewish culture things. They're, you know, he's he's kind of in that crossover culture world that's there. And and the thing I love about Jesus, he's so counterculture in everything he does. But we see that in the beginning of verse 8 that he feeds 4,000 people and they have all this food left over. And then he jumps in the boat and he gets just where he wants to and he's bombarded by Pharisees. And they challenge his authority and they want to know, by what authority are you speaking? And he deals with that situation and he gets back in the boat and all of a sudden there's kind of a lull. And this interesting thing's happened. He gives a warning about the Pharisees and Herod. But His disciples aren't really paying attention. They're thinking, hey, you know, we've been bombarded by people. Things are slow now. I'm hungry. So they're going to think about food. And imagine with me somebody sliding out from one of the seats, you know, saying, hey, man, it's hungry. Now we've got some time. These guys are rowing. Let's, you know, let's get some food. And they pull out and they have one loaf of bread. Now, this is not some sort of artisan bread or famous Dave's Big Loaf of Bread type thing. This is a pita bread, basically. Okay? And these are 12 hungry fishermen. And they have a snack, basically. Okay? And so you can just imagine with me, they're starting to, you know, they kind of look at each other like, dude, who forgot the food? And, you know, they probably, you know, like most human beings, started blaming. You know, Peter, why didn't you grab a, one of those baskets of bread? We just had seven baskets left over. Why didn't you snag on one of those? And, you know, Matthew, why didn't you do your thing? And, Thomas, how come you didn't? Oh, you're doubted anyway, so it didn't matter, you know. And they went through the whole process over and over again. And Jesus understands that they don't hear him. And how many people have been there? To where there's so much stuff going around you, you hear the noise, but you're just focused on really what the situation is. Every married man ought to raise their hand. (laughs) Every wife ought to be able to say, yes, I know, he never hears what I have to say. You know, it's that concept, and Jesus knew it. He was there. And so the first point I want to make is that we don't often understand, even when we see they had seen Jesus time and time again do all this miraculous stuff, and they still didn't get it. They still were preoccupied with what was going on, and they were busy doing their thing. And it was just one of those times when they obviously didn't understand. And so Jesus begins to ask them all these questions. Uh, don't you see? Do you have ears? How come you're not hearing? Have you, is your heart hardened? What are you hearing? Don't you remember? They're thinking about their bellies. And he said, don't you remember? I just fed 5,000 people. I just fed 4,000 people. A piece of pita bread is nothing to me. I've got it under control. Don't you understand what's really going on? And we begin to see that the disciples see Jesus for what he does, not for who he is. They haven't got beyond what Jesus does for them. Isn't that kind of how we are in life sometimes? How many, when they were young, accepted Jesus kind of as a fire insurance policy? I know I did. You know, for lack of a worse analogy, I mean, better analogy is that I lived like hell during the week and paid my insurance premiums on Sunday. Is really kind of how I was raised. But you see, that's not who Jesus is. I saw what Jesus could do for me. He could keep me from hell. But I didn't know really who he was until much later on in my life. So we see this interesting process of how Jesus begins to unfold and all these things that are going on. And, and the frustrating part about Mark is he doesn't really answer the questions all the time. Jesus lays all this stuff out there. He tells us it's not about bread. And then in verse 21, he just drops it. He leaves the reader time to absorb, to kind of figure out what's going on. But he doesn't ever explain, did the disciples ever really get it? And so we jump in next to the fact that in verse 22, Jesus again gets off the boat and he's bombarded by a crowd of people. And the second point I want to really make is that a touch from Jesus affects how we see. When we see, we don't really see, and it usually takes a touch from God to get us to see properly. And so, Mark introduced us to this healing story. And the funny part about it is, it's by no coincidence that this healing story is about a blind guy. And we're bombarded with this chaotic situation. This crowd brings this guy before Jesus and implores Jesus, heal this guy. Now, I don't know how you guys read that, but sometimes when I read the Bible, it gets a little strange for me. So the first thing that came to my mind was, dude, did they hate this guy or love this guy? The guy didn't come to Jesus. The crowd drugged this guy to Jesus. And we don't know if the guy was loved because they knew him in the past and they wanted to see him restored. Or we didn't know if they wanted him healed because they just got tired of him begging on the street corner because he couldn't do anything else. You see, Mark doesn't answer those questions for us. We don't see the motives behind anything there. We don't see anything. All we know is that a blind guy comes to Jesus and the crowd says, heal this guy. And we're not given anything more than that. And we see something really interesting. Jesus doesn't instantly heal him. Throughout the scriptures, you see a lot of places that when someone comes in need, Jesus makes the the healing. But he doesn't. He grabs this guy by the hand and he escorts this man through town outside of the village. Now, we're not even told why. I mean, if Jesus wanted to spend quality time talking to him, we have no clue. We know that the throngs of people constantly followed him around. And so it was like, why are you taking this guy out of town? But he takes him out of town and he does something that is just really quite interesting. He spits in his face. The scripture says he spits on his eyes. Now, I don't know how many of you guys would think that that's a good thing. But where I come from, if somebody spits in my face, that's not really a good thing. We see in John 9 that Jesus spit in the ground and made clay and healed the man's eyes, told him to go wash in in, in a pool. But this is the only time we ever see that, in in, in in a negative sense, kind of a nasty thing, Jesus hocks a loogie in this guy's face. And it's like, what? But you know the thing that's so interesting about it is, is that, it was a really intimate thing. When God created the heavens and the earth, we're told that God came down and breathed after handmaking man, breathed into him. Married couples know that there's a DNA exchange when you kiss. When Jesus spit in this man's eyes, there was a DNA exchange. That's a pretty intimate thing when you look at it. And God took the time to do that. And one of the other firsts we see in there, is this the only miracle that Jesus ever asked, does it work? Because he says, what are you seeing? And the man's response is that I see men walking like trees. It's the, other, the only other miracle that we see in Scripture uh, in the time of Jesus is that it's not instantaneous, that it took a second touch from God, take a second touch from Jesus, to bring clear sight to this guy. And I think Mark is really doing a wonderful thing for us, is because the fact is that we need that process. Things aren't instantaneous in our life. We get frustrated. We get you know we doubt our faith. That things don't instantly happen. Boy, you know, Pastor Dan prayed for me, and I'm still struggling six weeks later. And sometimes that's okay. Because Jesus wants to teach us things in the process. How many have ever been to the car museum? I know Dan has, but the car museum in Tacoma. How about the glass museum down in Tacoma? The Chihuly Bridge and the stuff like that. I'm a real big Chihuly fan. And so when it opened up the opening weekend, I had a dear friend of mine that did all the advertising for that and I couldn't get tickets. And he says, man, I know you love Chihuly and I know you would love to see him blow glass and all this other stuff going on. And would you uh, want to come down? I go, dude, I've been trying to get tickets for a few weeks. I can't get tickets. He said, all you got to do is carry a box of brochures in with me, and I'll get you in for free. So, dude, I was all about it. I sat down for about six hours and watched Chihuly do his thing and looked at the, all the exhibits. And I would look at the exhibits and try to understand the motive and all this other stuff, why my wife and family were with me. They were just kind of like, are you going to stare at this thing any longer? You know? But it's similar in the, in the car museum. If you take a 16-year-old kid in the car museum and he looks at these antique cars, he's going to say, oh, they're shiny. you know? But he's from a whole different era. Okay? So his appreciation, even if you have 20-20 vision and the lights go out in the darkness, you don't appreciate what you see because you can't see through the darkness. But even if the lights are on, you still oftentimes don't appreciate it because you don't understand what you're really looking at. But if there's a Hudson in there or there's an old, uh, you know, Chevy Coupe or something like that, there are people here that are going to look like, ah, because your first date may have taken place in a Hudson or a Chevy Coupe. You may have watched uh, the first drive-in movie you ever saw in an old antique Chevrolet or a Ford. You know, and it creates a whole new understanding plus a whole new appreciation. I was raised during the muscle car era. Okay, so when I see 60 vintage anything, my heart rate goes up because I know that there's a certain amount of horsepower under that hood that people today just don't understand. And they may look like some of the biggest bomb cars in the world. My first car was a 66 F85 Oldsmobile, but it had over 400 horsepower in that baby stock. And it was an ugly car. But it was a sleeper car, because when I went down to the drag and wanted to race somebody, hey, you want to race? Sure, no problem. My car looks ugly. It's not all rotted out. But you know what? I didn't lose too often, because they put power in them babies now. You know, these little four-cylinder cars you get now, they get great gas mileage, but you can walk as fast as they drive. So, you know, so, you know, the whole idea is that we have to understand things in order to be able to appreciate things. And that's where Jesus is, is leading these people. And Mark kind of just brings us it, into that whole process of understanding and all this stuff that takes place there. So the blind man sees clearly and things are coming out of the promise, this whole possibility. And we see that it's a step-by-step process. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't dump the whole load on us when we come to him? How many came to Jesus and had every problem solved instantaneously? How many came to Jesus and every question you ever had about God was instantly answered? I spent three years in master's degree uh, in theology, and someone asked me one time, Greg, what did you learn? And I said, Jesus loves me, this I know, or the Bible tells me so spent $60,000 to to learn about the love of God all over again. Um, Turn with me, those of you who have your Bibles, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7 really quick. I love the story of the uh, Israelites going into the promised land. We see all the struggles that they went through, But one of the things that I just love more than anything is the wisdom of God in this process. And they go on the promised land, and they've got all this land that's theirs. And, and, you know, the Bible says, on every place your foot shall tread, I'll give to you. And he gives a thing. And we see it starting in verse 21, it says, Do not be afraid of the nations, for the Lord your God is among you, and he is great, and he's awesome. The Lord your God will drive the nations out ahead of you little by little. You will not clear them away all at once. Otherwise, the wild animals would multiply too quickly for you. And he goes on and talks again about the power of God. The wonderful thing about the promised land is that Israel only had to occupy what they could take. And God took care of the rest using the enemy. You know, they didn't have to build houses when they took the land. They just took over the enemy's houses. And God had a plan, and he didn't want to just chase all of the enemy out of the land at one time because he said the the wild beasts would take over, and then they would have a lot of problems. They would have to redo all the vineyards. They would have to take care of everything else. You know, wouldn't that be nice to have your dream home in your mind and the people that are living in it are maintaining it, cleaning the pool, taking care of all the stuff, and when you take possession of it, then all you have to do is take possession, and everything is there. You don't have to move furniture. You don't have nothing. You don't have to mow the lawn. It's already been taken care of. The sprinkler system's underway. The 80-inch big-screen TVs on the wall. You know, that's Israel. They took the land, but when they occupied the land, they didn't have to do anything other than occupy. But here's the kicker: when they were in the wilderness. They were led by the fire, pillar of fire in the cloud. And the Bible says that their shoes never wore out and their clothes never got tattered and they got manna every day and quail every day. And when they went into the promised land, all went away. So it didn't happen instantly and they had to occupy it. But, you know, there's a time in our life in Jesus that when we kind of get out of that honeymoon stage, and we in a really practical life, that sometimes the manna goes away. Sometimes things aren't instantly answered because Jesus wants us to understand what it means to stand and walk for him. So we have that wonderful experience of the promised land, and then Mark shifts gears all of, again. He tells this guy, Jesus tells this guy, go home, don't tell anybody, actually don't even go back to town. Just sneak around town and and keep this whole thing hush-hush. And then Mark shifts gears again. And we see that how we see Jesus affects how we know Jesus. So Jesus wasn't this traditional guy. Normally under traditional uh, teachings of a rabbi, the students would ask the questions and then sit still and allow the rabbi to impart all his wisdom. But you don't see that very often in Jesus' ministry at all. What you see is that Jesus, counter to culture, is asking questions and listening for people's responses. Because it's not so important that he gets to tell of everything he knows. He wants to know what they know. And oftentimes I think that is so that he can touch their hearts where they're at. And so we see this non-traditional concept and that he asks this interesting question as they leave town and all this wonderful stuff happens and we have this whole situation in the boat never resolved. We have this situation about the blind man who sees in a uh, staged situation. And all of a sudden Jesus kind of drops this question. Who do people say that I am? And they know what he's asking, you know, so some are going to say, well, you're a rebel, you're a radical, you're a false prophet. Maybe you're Elisha, you know, you're a good teacher. But does really does Jesus really care what other people are thinking about? Him? He's really trying to get the temperature of the situation, because not only do we have to have that touch from Jesus and the touch from Jesus shows us how we know him. The last point I want to make is how we know Jesus affects how we serve Him. Because Jesus drops the million-dollar question on the disciples. Not, who do they say that I am? All of a sudden, He just turns around, and I, I can just imagine that godly stare into their faces, into their hearts. And says, who do you say that I am? And that Greek you is an emphatic pronoun. And what that really means is that it is a capital Y, capital O, capital U. You know, anybody who texts in this thing, you know, you you can understand the. for those of us who text, you you, you know the emotions of the person because if they're emphatically giving you uh, bolded capital letters, you know, exclamation point, exclamation point, you know, there's no question that they're emphatic about what's going on. That's the way the Greek is written. And it's interesting that, true to form, Peter speaks before he really, truly gets it. And Peter says, well, sure, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. But his concept of what that Messiah was like is really not truly understood. Because as God begins, to, uh, Jesus begins to teach them and unfold things, what we see is that Peter rebukes Jesus when he says that I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Peter says, ah, time out. That's not my Messiah. And Jesus has to rebuke him. Because Peter's concept of the Messiah was that it was going to be a military guy coming in kicking the Romans out so that the Jews could have their country back. See, that wasn't new. There was many different political voices and Jewish voices in Jesus' time. One of them is the Pharisees and we know that. And And they're called the separated ones. And the Pharisees were all about religious duty. It was all uh, sacramental living, sacrifice. It was all about purity rituals. It was always about following the Sabbath. It was always about um, doing the right religious thing in the religious order. And we, we know churches like that today. And they hated the Romans. But the thing that's interesting is the Pharisees were all about individual religion making you look right, you know, how to worship, how to act, how to do things. And one of the Hellenistic Greek philosophies of that day was all about individual religion. You know, I find it interesting that we've made Christianity this individual thing, but we forget to realize that it doesn't happen in a vacuum. We live in a community, and we affect one another. And the air we breathe affects everything else. And, you know, this whole idea that I can do my thing because it doesn't affect anybody else's thing, that is bunk. Let me tell you this. It smells like smoke. It came straight from the pit of hell as far as I'm concerned. That whole individual mindset that I can do my thing in Jesus and you can do your thing in Jesus and we're all right. It doesn't work that way. And, and so the Pharisees were kind of that way. And then we have the Sadducees. These are the elite, wealthy Jews. They're the landowners, okay? And they are all about political power and social climbing. They actually made lots of money off of the Roman government for coming in. They didn't hate the Romans because they were being made wealthy by the Romans. We also have Essenes, and they weren't really talked a lot about in the Old, I mean in the New Testament, but they were a sect of Monks, basically. They sold all they had. They got rid of all the material things. And they became very devout, disciplined individuals. And they lived in communities. And they kind of did their own little thing. And it was all to promote, um, look at how holy I am look at how, because of all the discipline I have. And then we have the scribes. And they were, the, uh, they were basically the theologians of the day. They were smart. They wrote. They uh, um, taught in the synagogues. They uh, translated the scriptures for the people. The interesting thing is that there were a lot of scribes that were Pharisees, but not all that many Pharisees that could become scribes because it was a, a totally separate process. Then we have the zealots. We know that uh, one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot, a radical militant guy that thought everything was going to be taken by guerrilla power. You know, and, and we even see that today in, in a lot of that stuff. And then they have the Samaritans. You know, and the Samaritans were the remnant of the northern kingdom that when the dispersa happened, or they were put in exile in the Old Testament, they were the remnant that was left behind, and to survive they interbred with non-Jews. And so if you've ever read Ezra or Nehemiah, and you get that idea that you know they were called to divorce and clean out house and do all this other stuff, you know, those that chose not to were the Samaritans. And so they were kind of anti-Jewish Jews, okay? And so they had this, and each one of these people had an idea of what the Messiah was supposed to be. Of who the Messiah was going to look like, what he was going to do in that whole process. And um, we see that even in Peter, like I said. So in conclusion, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, Jesus wanted to keep this whole thing secret. And maybe one of the reasons why he did is because he didn't want to become a political pawn to every group that's out there because they all had a different understanding. And we live in a country that made some really crazy announcements the last couple weeks. National gay marriage. And we, I've read every blog I can think of on it. Some people say, oh, they love one out. I mean, and I can tell you the, the stuff that I've read that is just crazy to me. But the truth of the matter is, is that God's not Democrat, nor is he Republican. As Christians, we either vote what God tells us in Scripture, or we don't. I hate presidential election years, not because I'm anti-presidential. But I use the word of God leveraged in ways that I can just imagine God standing up there saying, dude, I never promised that. I mean, if you watch a lot of evangelistic guys on TV. <laughs> You've got to wonder, what God are they talking about? You know, all I can tell you is that Mark wants to unfold what the God of Scripture is like. And he does for us in this section of Scripture, and he shows us that it's a process. And that we oftentimes miss it because we're so occupied with what we think the Messiah should look like. And not look like. In Matthew 26 verses 20 through 25. We see that the disciples and Jesus are up in this upper room having communion like we did this morning. And Jesus drops this time bomb on his people. One of you is going to betray me. And we see an interesting thing in that portion of scripture. That if if you don't really get it, you just pass right over it that around the table, as they were reclining there, they begin to ask, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And then they get to Judas. And he says, is it I, Rabbi? See, what Matthew is showing you is that every disciple but one made a transition from teacher to Lord. How many of you realize that it's a whole lot easier to turn your back on a teacher than it is... The Lord God, creator of the universe. See, the Lord is, the word in that portion of Scripture is is kurios. That's the Greek. And it means three things. One, owner. One who's in charge by possession. Jesus paid a price for every one of you. So he's lowered by ownership. Second thing is it means master. And that's one who's in charge by authority. Now, I wake up every morning and I have to ask myself a critical question. Who's in charge? Greg or God? But if Greg wants to be in charge, does that change God's authority in my life? He's still God. I can't stop the sun from rising, the moon from falling. I can't stop the heat from going up or the rain from coming down. I can't. I can try to be in charge. But ultimately, God's will will be done. He has raised up governments, taken down governments. He has brought unity in 66 books by so many different authors. Whether we cooperate or not, the book's going to end the same. Jesus is going to come again, and He's going to rule and reign among men whether we like it or not. And our choice... And our being lords of our own life isn't going to change anything in that process. So I have to ask myself, who's in charge, Greg or God? We have to ask ourselves that every day, who do you say that I am? And it's not just a salvation thing. You're going to have to ask it every day when you don't have money to pay the bills, when your spouse decides to leave, when you decide to go on the computer and maybe look at something inappropriate, when your kids rebel against how you've raised them when you get to work one morning and there's a pink slip, you still have to ask yourself, who do I say Jesus is? Is he Lord or is he not? Because life will test you. You're never going to have all the answers. And Jesus not only asks the question here, Jesus didn't want to be a political pawn because He didn't want people to see Him through His power. We often do that, you know. Jesus, I see you because you're my provider. You know, we sing songs like Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, and it's all about what Jesus can do for us. But Jesus chose to have us view Him through the cross. And it wasn't what he, He could do for us in one fashion, but what He did for us. And now it's all about... What we can do for him. And that's where lordship comes in. So I'm going you know, to ask, you know, um, just bow our heads. And, and if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, you know, this is a great opportunity to see who Jesus is, to meet who Jesus is. And I'm not going to guarantee you uh, a great life. When I came to Christ, when I was a kid, my life got really complicated. Because for the first time ever, I had to pay attention to this thing. <laughs> And Jesus told me I had to love my enemy, and I had to pray for those who persecute me. And I had to trust him when I didn't want to trust him. And uh, it wasn't always fun. And so, you know, I'm not going to guarantee that if you don't know Jesus, and you want to come to Jesus right now, that everything is going to be smooth because it probably So uh, every head bowed, every eye closed. If there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus, you just raise your hand. I just want to pray for you. Um, The next group of people that I want to really talk to is obviously us. If there's an area of your life that you know that you're just having a hard time letting God be in charge, if there's there's something going on in your life right now that is so easy for you to want to take charge, to try to fix your kids, to try to fix your spouse, to try to manipulate your job, to try to do whatever else, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that promotion doesn't come from the east or the west. It comes from above. So you may be struggling a job or something like that, but you're struggling with an area of your life that you're saying, God, I trust you in this, but I don't trust you in that. And God, want to ask you right now, who do you say that I am? Is there anybody here that I can pray for? Just raise your hand and I will pray with you. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I just pray right now in your name, by the power of your son. Thank you that we can know who you are. Thank you that we can experience your, your grace and your mercy. And Father, we yield our heart to you. Your word tells us that uh, our obedience is proof of our love for you. That we don't obey you because we have to. We don't obey you because it's the right thing to do. We obey you because you are worthy of our obedience. So, Father God, I just pray for these individuals that you will begin to work in their lives. As you did with your own disciples, Jesus, I ask that you open their eyes to who you really are. Father, you're much bigger than we can ever portray. You're much bigger than we can even comprehend. You are so much bigger than our problems. Father, your word says that the earth is your footstool. That tells me that my God has a size million shoe. And that's a pretty big God. So, Father, we yield our hearts to you. Let us go our certain ways. Allow us to impact your world. Uh, Be the light to us as we are the light to others. In Jesus' name. Amen.